Our Father, our hearts go out to all of the families that have been uh, affected uh, in, in the Gulf region of our country because of the tremendous amount of oil that has been accumulating in the Gulf and moving toward uh, many of the, of the beaches and shores of, of these states. Our hearts do indeed go out to them, but Lord God, I, I pray that you will help us as a nation to bring a swift end to, to this uh, loss of oil. And uh, some may see it as a tremendous waste, but, but Lord, we, we would ask that you would show mercy upon those who, whose, whose life depended upon uh, the various industries in the Gulf, whether it be fishing and and, and other uh, particular uh, kinds of, of, of work that, uh, that is involved there. We, we, we know, Lord God, that they're suffering, and so we want to lift them up to you today. We pray that you would bring, Lord, wisdom, and that our own nation and our own governors and uh, even leadership in this nation would, would really see the need to turn to you in times of crisis like these. And if they don't, Lord, we as a church will. And we turn to you, Lord God, each and every day for our own personal lives and our families' lives. Lord, we, we cannot go without seeking the help of those, our neighbors, our friends, our brothers in Christ. And so we take this time, Lord God, to lift this crisis up to you. Lord, may you be merciful to help bring a, a swift end to the problem and uh, a quick cleanup of, of all that is, uh, that is uh, dirty, the, uh, the shores and all. We ask, Father, today that you will bless our time in your word. We pray, Father, that you will give us wisdom and understanding through the anointing and blessing of your Holy Spirit as we come now to, to read and to study your word. We pray, Father, that you'll help us to refocus our attention again in the book of Genesis, and especially in this most crucial chapter, not only of the book of Genesis, but of the whole Bible. We come now, Lord God, asking for your grace and mercy as we study your truth now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 3, if you will. And today I want to uh, begin a series of studies in this particular chapter. Of course, we've been, since January, studying uh, the book of Genesis and uh, in particular considering the issue of creation as God, we are told in his word, created the heavens and the earth in six literal 24-hour days and uh, spent uh, a whole lot of time bringing comparison and contrast to the various views of creation and to seeing how God's uh, account of creation is certainly the best way of seeing how things were done. We're not done actually in the scientific area of it. There's still a lot to go as we get into chapter six, seven, and eight and following then even into chapter 11. But with that in mind, I want to read, first of all, the first five verses, and then I want to concentrate on the first three words for today. 
The first three words of verse 1. Verses 1 through 5 says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. I've got a couple of questions to ask so that you can put your thinking caps on this morning. I know it's morning. It's not that early in the morning, but it's morning. And so I know that sometimes, you know, it takes us a little while to get our eyes open and our minds working. So this, this is for you to kind of stimulate your uh, intellectual prowesses, uh, per se. But anyway, assume this. Assume that penguins live with a density of a thousand penguins per square mile and can run at an average speed of seven miles per hour on land and swim at 20 miles per hour. You got that? It's pen- penguins. All right. Seven miles per hour on land, 20 miles per hour in, uh, in water. Now, also assume this. Assume that a polar bear has a territory of 10 square miles, can run at 25 miles per hour, and swim at 10 miles per hour. Now, here's the question. How many penguins will an average polar bear eat in any given month? Remembering that a polar bear could, as a maximum, only eat one penguin per hour, and uh, 7% of the land is next to the sea. So think, here, here go, da dee da 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 dee da You're thinking about the question, how many penguins can a polar bear eat in, an, in a month, okay? Y'all got some answers? Any answers out there? Just, 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 come on, think, just think. Okay, some answers, now don't yell them out or, okay. Well, here it is. How many of you thought maybe uh, about five a month or, or less? Anybody? Okay. 20 uh, per month? Okay. Well, here's the answer. Zero. The answer is zero because, you see, penguins live in the southern hemisphere and most likely in in Antarctica, and polar bears live in the northern hemisphere up by the Arctic Sea. Ooh. Let me give you one more test. You got to listen now. Okay, here we go. Here's the second test. A ship is docked at harbor. Over the side hangs a rope ladder with rungs a foot apart. The tide rises at a rate of nine inches per hour. At the end of six hours, how much of the rope ladder will still remain above water, assuming that nine feet were above the water when the tide began to rise? Okay. Okay. How many of you say six feet? Three feet? Four feet? You know what the answer is? Nine feet. Why? Because the ladder rises with the ship. Did anybody get fooled? Come on. Now be honest. Some of you got fooled. How many of you got fooled? Come on, be honest. All right. See, that's the whole idea behind this test I'm giving you. Because you see, here's the catch. So much can be done with words to mislead someone from the true intention or answer. 
Now think about this. In the very first verses, or first seven verses, and we only read five of them, but in the first seven verses of Genesis chapter 3, we have record of one of the most vivid examples of word twisting ever. That is what we're going to be dealing with in the next few weeks as we study the book of Genesis chapter 3. Because the result of this, of course, was a tragedy that continues to this very day. The word twisting that you find here in the first seven verses of chapter 3 have continued tragically to this very day. The results. Now, because it's been a while since we uh, last were in Genesis, it would do us really good to review some important facts of Genesis chapters 1 and 2. When God's six-day work week was complete, the six days that he created all of the heaven and the earth, he proclaimed his creation not only good, he said it was very good. Chapter 1, verse 31. He said it was very good. The world and everything in it was ideal. In a word, it was perfect. Now, there was perfect harmony, there was perfect order, there was total absence of pain, there was total absence of suffering and and disease. Evil did not exist in the the immediate post-creation world. There's not even a hint of it in chapters 1 and 2. And I'm sure that Adam and Eve were perfectly content, as you can imagine living in a perfect world created by God. They had a home in paradise. There was, it wasn't even a gated community. All of it was for them. The Garden of Eden was flawless and their fellowship with God in that place up to this point was unbroken. Can you imagine unbroken fellowship with God? That's what the Garden of Eden was in chapters 1 and 2. There was nothing between them and the one who created them. They were truly innocent of evil, at least until the serpent showed up. And this is where all the questions start flying from all sides. Why did the serpent have to even show up? I mean, what's up with that? Why did the serpent show up? If God is God, then why did he allow Eve to be tempted? And why should there be evil in the first place? And where did it even come from if it didn't exist in the perfect garden that God had created? Is God then responsible for human suffering? Is God cruel? Is he capricious? Is he vindictive? Or is he too weak to prevent suffering? These are just questions that have been asked down through the ages about this dilemma in chapter 3. Things are not the way God intended, that's for sure, as we look around today. Would you agree with me? Things are not the way God intended, that's for sure. You look at the world around us and things are obviously out of order and not in very good shape. Civilization is at war with itself. You know, this is kind of interesting. I got to, I got to stick this in here. Man, how many of you have been watching the World Cup? I've been watching every day. I've been watching. I just, I just love soccer. I don't know what it is. Man, but I mean, I must have fallen and hit my head or something. 
somewhere. And I said, all of a sudden, I love soccer. I'm just watching. But here's the thing. You know, you, you watch this thing and you know the whole intention, the underlying intention of, of something like the World Cup is to bring nations together. To have uh, some kind of a sense of global peace, you know, over a game. Then you watch the game and they go out there to try to kill each other. Sliding and kicking and boom, and hit and boom, and I didn't do it. Oh, and then acting, all the acting goes on. There's no peace about that until after the game's over. I think. But then you hear the commentators talk about how, you know, oh, you know, there, there's problems with this team and that team and this one team left and this one team got mad at their coach. And that's world peace, folks, as we see it. Civilization, bottom line, all of that world peace stuff aside, civilization is at war with itself. Take note of the power struggles. Take note of the crime and corruption. We see it right here on our own border. And then add to that diseases, droughts, and famines. Clearly, something has gone wrong. Who is to blame for all of this mess? Who do we blame? Do we blame God? Do we blame each other? A lot of people do. A lot of people blame God. A lot of people blame nations. A lot of people blame uh, uh, political parties. A lot of people blame former presidents. I mean, you know, people just blame, I mean, for the sin in the world. I remember a long time ago that people blamed President Reagan for AIDS. Well, he didn't bring it to this country. You understand? We got to blame somebody. That's, that's, that's what's happening because we're living in an imperfect world. Do we, as so many have, and pass it off as, uh, as, as being the fault of that serpent? Let's blame the devil. Remember Flip Wilson many years ago? The devil made me do it. People still do that today. Devil made me do it. Well, the devil's bad and he's responsible for all of this mess, is he? Well, this is the importance now. I'm saying all of this to tell you that this is the importance of Genesis chapter 3. Because Genesis chapter 3 is the very foundation of everything that comes after it. Genesis 3 is the very foundation of everything that comes after this chapter. Because without this chapter, little else in the Bible or in life itself would make any sense at all. It is the chapter that explains why the world has so many problems. It explains the human dilemma. And it explains why we need a Savior. Ultimately, it explains what God is doing in history. In other words, Genesis chapter 3 is the necessary foundation for a true and accurate worldview. Now, as believers in Jesus Christ, we have a certain worldview. A view of what the world is, why it is the way it is, what the solutions for those problems are. We base that upon the whole of the Word of God. But in particular, the foundation for that is found here in Genesis chapter 3. Outside of this foundation, any other worldview is completely and hopelessly wrong. Now we can discuss that at another time. But when the Lord completed his perfect creation, there was no disorder, there was no chaos, there was no conflict, there were no struggles, there was no pain, there was no discord, there was no deterioration, and of course, there was no death. Remember, God said, 
it's all very good at the end of the six days of creation. It is all very good. And yet, our lives today are filled with every one of these things all the time. Our lives are filled with every one of these things all the time. Chaos, and, uh, uh, conflict, struggles, pain, discord, deterioration, death. So I venture to say that we'd find it hard to imagine what a perfect world would have been like. We, we, we really don't know, do we? Because we've never been in a perfect world. All we have is this account in chapters 1 and 2 to tell us that this world was at one time perfect for a short time. This chapter makes clear how we got from that paradise to where we are today. So let me be bold in saying that evolution offers no explanation for the human dilemma, much less any solution for it. We can ask even more questions here. Why is human existence weighed down with so many moral and spiritual problems? Think about the question. Why is the human existence, or why is human existence weighed down or fraught with so many moral and spiritual dilemmas? Well, evolution will never be able to answer that question. In fact, pure naturalistic evolution cannot account for anything that is moral or spiritual. And not only can it not account for it, it really won't account for it. And yet, think about this. We are moral and spiritual creatures. And everybody knows this. We are all moral and spiritual creatures. The concepts of good and evil are inherent and intrinsic in the human conscience, consciousness. I mean, even the most atheistic evolutionist has a conscience, I, ho I hope. Wouldn't you hope that? That even uh, the, the most atheistic and humanistic evolutionist has a conscience. Evolution offers no explanation for the dilemma of sin and of evil. No hope for a solution. We are all, in their words, in the words of many evolutionists, we are all, and may I say, cosmic mistakes. Don't you just love being a cosmic mistake? I mean, doesn't it just thrill you that you have some part in this whole world scheme by being a cosmic mistake? So now, we're cosmic mistakes. How do we unmistake ourselves? Evolution will not tell you. Because it won't. Because it can't. Now, if you follow evolution consistently... <clears throat> you will find that the doctrine of evolution ends with the denial of the reality of evil. If you follow consistently the doctrine of evolution, you realize that it ends with the denial of the reality of evil. Why? Because for the most part, evolution says there is no God. 
There is no God. And if there is no God, then there can be no unbreakable moral principles that govern the world. And therefore, no moral accountability of any kind at all. And you know what's scary about that thought? Because if you follow along in that kind of thinking, no, there is no reason then to condemn a Hitler or to applaud a good Samaritan. No reason to condemn a Hitler or applaud a good Samaritan. So it is important to note that the biblical account of the fall of man actually refutes the fundamental idea of evolution. This chapter refutes the fundamental idea of evolution. You see, instead of teaching that man began at the bottom of the moral ladder and slowly uh, rose higher through social and psychological evolution, Genesis 3 teaches the exact opposite. In other words, it teaches that man began at the very peak and summit of the created order. We can say it is the pinnacle of the created order. That's where man began. We know this because in chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Genesis, it tells us that man was created in the image of God. If we're created in the image of God, wouldn't you say that that's the peak of creation? Yes. Man began at the very peak and summit of the created order. And because of Adam's sin, the history of humanity is the story of a shameful, disgraceful spiritual and moral decline. We started here. We're going in this direction. And I believe that the, the Apostle Paul clearly, clearly points that, uh, that decline for us in Romans chapter 1. I'd like for you to turn there. And I want you to follow along with me here through a, a good portion of this particular uh, chapter of Romans. Because we, we can see clearly that regression taking place. Romans 1 beginning of verse 21. He says, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. Now, you know, to, to know him as God, when they knew him as God, but then not to acknowledge him or to glorify him or to give him thanks, that's when we start going in that downward direction. So when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations. And their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise. They became fools. And they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. What is it, what is it that man looks at today? Well, they, they try to find some link to the animal kingdom, the animal order. Part of uh, the job of evolution is to get man to think that they're animals. God did not create us as animals. So professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into the image made like to corruptible man. Do you know when that also happened? It happened in the book of, of Exodus. When Moses was up in the mountain with, with God... The people were saying, Moses isn't coming down. Maybe he's dead. He's not going to come down. And they got Aaron and a few others to mold into shape a, a 
sacred cow, as it were. The golden calf. They changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into the image of a beast and said, this must be God. Let's go on. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. Well, there's enough there for us to see this decline, but let's notice the regression now in the next passage of this chapter. It keeps going south, as it were. Verse 26, for this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. Now not just uncleanness, but now vile affections. For even their women did, did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another. Men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet or fitting or proper. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge... God gave them over to a reprobate mind, from uncleanness to vile affections to a reprobate mind. You are going down further and further in moral and spiritual foundation. God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, not fitting, not beneficial being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness. Sounds like the front page of the, of the newspaper. Full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, uh, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding. You know, there are a lot of people today that you see them on TV holding up signs, protesting one thing or another. They, they have never even weighed the issues out without understanding. Covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that, uh, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. People today are just uh, having such a great pleasure in seeing Sin lived out on our TVs and in our movies and, and whatnot. So the result of all of this can be put this way. The result of all of this can be put this way. Humanity today, humanity today is worse than ever before. Humanity today is worse than ever before. But Paul puts it this way in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. The word wax there means to grow. So evil men and seducers shall wax or grow worse and worse, get worse and worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. It is not getting better. Society is not getting better. It is getting worse. The Bible says it, and we are seeing it lived out each and every day. And there's no mistaking that fact that man is and has been responsible for his deliberate disobedience to God since that very day in the garden. Man is responsible. See, this is going to bring up some more questions. Paul says in Romans 5 verse 12, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, by one man sin entered into the world. Which man was that? Adam. And death by sin. And so, pass, and so death passed upon all men, 
for that all have sinned. Again, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. As in Adam all die. So Adam becomes responsible here. But here's the question that some people have yet to ask. Maybe it's been asked, but not really out loud. But here's the question. Who sinned first? Adam or Satan? Or we might even have to ask the question this way. Who sinned first? Adam, Eve, or Satan? We're going to get into this more as we move along from our first three words. That's all we're looking at today, the first three words. So we're going to get into the nitty-gritty in just a moment. But it's my hope and it is my prayer that the questions that have been asked, and even those that have not yet been asked, will be answered as we continue to study through this third chapter of the book of Genesis in depth and in detail. So let's look at verse 1 again. Remember, we're looking at the first three verses, but let's read the whole verse. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now my question to you is, what precedes the word now? What comes before the word now? Because here we have a statement in verse 1 of chapter 3, Now the serpent... So what came before the word now, or what comes before the word now? Well, the fact that everything up to this point was created perfectly by the Lord God himself, that's what precedes the word now. And the fact that everything in chapters 1 and 2 was to prepare us for chapter 3. That's what comes before this word now. But my question to you is, Do we feel prepared or unprepared with what we find in Genesis chapter 3? Beyond the word now. Do we feel prepared or unprepared with what we find? Because you see, out of nowhere, out of nowhere, something terrible happened. Evil appeared in the form of of an evil creature. Now, I only say that based upon what this creature does, not the fact that there was any evil creature in the garden to begin with. Now, these are questions we're going to answer along the way. We'll be more clear about this as we go. But but here's the thing. All of a sudden, from perfection, we hear the words, now the serpent was more subtle, more cunning, more wise than any beast of the field. Where did he come from? Where in the world did this creature come from? Now, understand this, and I, I know I referred to this a few weeks ago, but there was some communication. In a perfect world, there was communication between man, who was created in the image of God, and with all of the creation itself, all the animals. There was some way to communicate. Um, We can't say that it was verbal. It could have been. Quite possible. But there there certainly was communication. We don't see Eve questioning, how is it that this snake or this serpent speaks? No question about it. So this was not the problem. The problem is what is said. But we've got to get to that in just a moment. I have to say that it wasn't, when I asked the question, where did this creature come from? I have to say that it wasn't from the world at that time. It wasn't from the world at that time. 
Sin didn't begin on earth. It began in heaven. Isn't that interesting? I mean, doesn't that just awaken your senses this morning? Sin didn't begin on earth. It began in heaven. The mystery of iniquity didn't originate in the heart of a human being. It's sad source within the very bosom of an angelic being of the highest order. Now, I may sound like I'm getting ahead of myself, but we're going to get caught up here in just a minute. Sin entered the garden fully grown. Sin entered the garden fully grown. Brought in by Satan himself. Disguised as the serpent. I want you to consider a few things because we need to come to grips with who this serpent is. So let's begin in the last book of the Bible. Let's go to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9. Because we're going to find as we go through the scriptures that this serpent is actually, even though we're, it's, he, he's not described or, or uh, identified in this third chapter of Genesis, he is identified throughout the scriptures. We'll begin at the back, in the end, uh, Revelation 12 verse 9. And later on we're going to come back to this to put it in context, but right now just to know what it says. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent. The reference is, of course, to Genesis chapter 3. The great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. Now don't you think that the whole world was deceived on the day that Adam and Eve succumbed to the temptation to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Because the whole world was in Adam and Eve. We had to come from them. All of us, each and every one of us. And since then, this great deception has touched the whole world. So that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceived the whole world, he was cast out into the earth. <coughs> Excuse me. And his angels <coughs> were cast out with him. So again, questions arise. Where did Satan come from? Did God create him? Does that mean that God created evil? And if not, where did evil come from? We may not understand much about his origin. We do know that Satan is real. That he's an enemy. He's an adversary. And as an enemy and as an adversary, he is extremely dangerous. He's dangerous. I don't know why we want to mess with the devil. When I, when I say that he's extremely dangerous, I mean, it, it, it's, it's as if to say to you, listen, this is the top guy on the ten most wanted list. But with God, it's the one most wanted list. It's at the top of the list. But here's the thing. God knows exactly where he is. God knows exactly where he is this very moment. The fact of the matter is he's still dangerous. Because as we're going to look on about this serpent, we're going to realize what he's all about. 
You see, he's compared to a serpent again in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3 by the Apostle Paul, when he says, But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Well, the implication here, of course, is that this serpent is the devil himself. Going back to Revelation for just a moment, the names of serpent and dragon, as we saw them in, 12, in verse 12, chapter 12, verse 9, we see it again in Revelation 2, verse uh, 20, I'm sorry, verse 2. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand, a, a thousand years, which is to come. You know, that's his prophecy yet to be fulfilled, but it's going to happen. But we know him in Scripture. We know him in Scripture to be not only a serpent who deceives, but he is also the roaring lion who devours. He's not only the serpent who deceives, uh, who deceives, but the roaring lion that devours. Peter tells us this in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. I hope you're marking these things down. I know I'm going at a little quick pace here, but we've got a lot of stuff to cover before time. But listen, Peter said in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, Be sober and be vigilant. Be sober. Make sure that all of your senses, spiritually and physically and otherwise, are awake and sober and vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil... As a, a roaring lion walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. So it is good for us to know this about Satan. To know that among Satan's names also in the scriptures are Abaddon and Apollyon, which mean destroyer. A Hebrew word and a Greek word that all mean the same thing. Satan is come to destroy. Revelation 9.11 says they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue, a tongue has his name Apollyon. He's a destroyer. He comes to destroy. He comes to kill. God is not about death, by the way. God is about life. The enemy is about death. He's about destruction. Now the word Satan itself, Satan or the name Satan itself means adversary. So he always plays an adversarial role against the things of God. Devil means slander. He's always before the throne of God slandering you, slandering me. That's all he does. That's his whole nature, to slander. You know, we dig deeper into understanding this deceiver by the things that Jesus himself says about Satan. John 8, 44. Turn there in, in, in your Bibles. John 8, 44. Jesus has been speaking to uh, Jews that have been following him, and some of them have believed, and others are, are still questioning the things that Jesus is saying. And at some point, Jesus has to say this to them. He says in verse 44, You are of your father the devil. You are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. Do you know that here in chapter 3, even though we don't see that he kills anybody, you know, uh, physically, what happens to Adam and Eve? They die. They die spiritually. Every person born into this world is dead spiritually, as it were. Murder from the beginning. His whole intention was to get the creation of God that was created in the image of God to die. He was a murderer from the beginning, abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. No truth in Satan. When he speaks a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. So he's the father of lies, 
He's the father of murders because he's the first and foremost murderer from the very beginning. What does that say about the adversary and the serpent in chapter 3? By the way, when, he, when he's called a liar and the father of it, we see here in chapter 3 the birth and the beginning of the lie, the lie. Not just lies, but the lie. As a matter of fact, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9-12, through 12, it says, Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them a strong delusion, that they should believe a lie. By the way, that word a should be the word the, the lie. The New King James Version that you might have, it says the lie. That is more literal here. It is the lie that they all might be damned and, uh, who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. They believe the lie, the lie that began in Genesis chapter 3. Satan is called the evil one in Matthew chapter 13 verse 19. He's called the prince of, the, of this world in John chapter 12 verse 31. Paul calls him the God of this world in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, and the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. But I want you to see something in your, in your, uh, in your Bibles. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Because here in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 12, Paul says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. You want to stand against the devil? You need to put on the armor of God. You want to stand against the, the trickery and the deceptions of the devil? You need to put on the armor of God. Because he says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Satan is the ruler of them all, of all of these things. And we wrestle against that. You need to put on the whole armor of God. When you put on the whole armor of God, who are you putting on? You are putting on Jesus Christ, who defeated Satan already. Where? On the cross. We need to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, it needs to be said that Satan is no pushover. I don't know where some people think, you know, that they, they you know, in, in some traditional Christian groups or whatever, you know, they... They, they talk about stomping on the head of the devil, and so they do all of this kind of stuff. Listen, the, you know, the, the devil laughs at a lot of that. We need to be careful. Satan's no pushover. Yes, he's defeated. We know that. But how many of us face those spiritual uh, battles each and every day? Satan's not a pushover. And God's children must be careful not to allow him a foothold in their lives. A simple Yet profound thing that Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27, he says, Neither give place to the devil. How simple it is, but how profound. Don't give place for the devil. Don't let the devil come in. Don't let him come in and deceive you. Don't let him come in and connive you and change what God has already put into your hearts and your lives through his word. That's why it is so important to stay in God's word. In the book of James, it says, Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. 
Listen, you have victory over the devil. You have victory because of Jesus Christ. But don't set aside Jesus and then play around with, with the wiles of the devil. Don't give him a place in your life. Well, getting back to our text, it does not clearly identify the serpent as Satan. But as we've seen, the rest of scripture does make it clear who the serpent is. But I want you to take, for example, something that is found in both Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah 14. And we're going to do both of those passages right now. Ezekiel 28. I want you to turn there and look at verses 13 through 19. Now, as you're turning there, I want you, I want you to know that uh, prophetic language as it is, <clears throat> we see here in the book of Ezekiel as well as in Isaiah, that some of the statements being made here in these passages were actually being made toward a king. In this case, the king of Tyre, and Isaiah, the king of Babylon. Now, yet we find certain descriptions of the source of their particular power or their particular way of doing things being the devil. Therefore, God in, incorporates this language that brings us back to the source of their evil and of their wickedness. So with that in mind, notice verse 13 of Ezekiel 28. It says, Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. It's as if he's speaking directly to the source of the, the, uh, of, the, of the wickedness of these pagan kings. And he says, Hey, you've been in Eden, the garden of God. Who's their source? Satan. And then it says, Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardius, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald. And the carbuncle and gold, the workmanship of, the, of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. Which tells us that uh, this particular angel, because it's talking about an angel, was in actuality a leader of worship before the throne of God. Thou art the anointed cherub, verse 14, that covereth the cherub. That's an angel. And I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created. Perfect until iniquity was found in thee. And you have to stop and think. How was it that he was perfect as an angel? One moment and the next moment iniquity is found in his heart. What is it that... God gave to us as human beings and even gave to angels, even though we're not the same. We are not like angels and angels are not like us. Angels marvel at what God does for, for, for human beings. But there's one thing that, is, that, that kind of binds us. That one thing is that God created us and them with a free moral agency, with a free will to choose God or to choose against God. And he was perfect in his ways before the throne of God until iniquity was found in him. Verse 16, By the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence. Notice the things that are underlined here. Violence. Thou hast sinned. Therefore I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God. Profane. You know, we oftentimes think of profanity being just bad language. But profanity is really the opposite of being set apart for God and with God. Profanity in any way includes not only bad language, but bad living, bad things like pornography and all of that lumped all together. Just living a, totally apart from God. 
And I will destroy thee, he says, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. What it says is, somehow this angel saw himself in a reflection. And he says, wow, I sure am beautiful. And then he had some idea that he was very wise. He says, I'm beautiful and I'm wise. What sets in? Pride. Pride. What does God say about that? I will cast thee to the ground. Genesis 3. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. Thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude that I, by thine, of thine iniquities, by the iniquity of thy traffic. Therefore will I bring forth a fire from the midst of thee. It shall devour thee, and I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all of them that behold thee. All they that know thee among the people shall be astonished at thee. Thou shalt be a terror, and never shalt thou be any more. Did you know that hell was not created for man? Did you know that the Bible teaches us that hell was created for the devil and his angels? So hell wasn't created for you and me. But once we take the path of the, uh, of the enemy, once we take the, tr- the lies of the enemy and believe them, then that becomes our destiny. But of all the names given to Satan... Lucifer seems to stand out when it comes to an angelic being that had a great falling away from heaven. Very quickly, Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. I'll read it to you. Because of time, how art thou fallen? We're all pretty familiar with it, right? How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Light bearer, the name Lucifer means light bearer. How art thou cut down to the ground? There it is again. Which did weaken the nations, for thou hast said in thine heart... I will ascend unto heaven. Look at the five I wills of Satan or Lucifer. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Pride, pride, pride. But God says, yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, is this the man that is that made the earth to tremble. And for it to, to say man, of course, it brings us back to the thought of the prophecies also being toward the king that did shake kingdoms that made the world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof that opened not the houses or the house of his prisoners. So simply stated, Satan rebelled against God. Simply stated, Satan rebelled against God. And consequently, God had no choice but to cast Satan down from his exalted position in heaven. And originally when Satan ruled as the highest of all creations, his name was Lucifer. We said light bearer. It also means son of the morning. He was the anointed cherub who covered the very throne of God himself. He was the angel in charge of the glory of God's very own throne throughout the the physical and material universe. And, And one day he's perfect... Or one moment he's perfect until iniquity is found in his heart. Now next time we will look at Satan's subtlety and his cunning. We just, we just wanted to identify this serpent. And we still have to deal with how to get there and why. And we'll, we'll talk about that next time. 
So I hope this helps you to understand what we're dealing with when we get to chapter 3. The importance of it, the massive importance of it. But uh, as we get ready to leave here today, I don't want you to, to leave here with just the, all of these ideas about Satan. I, I actually want to leave you, leave, have you leave here with Jesus on your minds. With Jesus on your hearts. I want this to be a rejoicing. And so, staying in Genesis chapter 3, just go down to verse 15, because here's the promise of hope. Here's the promise of salvation. To the very devil himself, to the very serpent himself, God says, I will put enmity. In other words, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. Her seed, singular. Her seed is the Messiah. It's Jesus. In Genesis chapter 3, Jesus is in the midst of this chapter. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. We'll talk about that, of course, when we get there. But I want you to keep in mind the very fact that even though we've concentrated so much on, on Satan, I want you to concentrate completely on Jesus. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says, He that committeth sin is of the devil. In other words, he who practices it continually is of the devil. But notice this, for the devil sinneth from the beginning, Genesis chapter 3, and before. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested. Uh, when it says for this purpose, you're gonna, your tendons need to go up and get this. For this purpose, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was manifested. That he might destroy the works of the devil. We should rejoice. That was his purpose. That was one of his purpose, certainly, but, but a great purpose. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested. That he might destroy the works of the of the devil. Now let me leave you with one last passage of scripture. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 verses 51 through 58. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall all we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Are you victorious today because of what Jesus Christ has done? Because on the cross of Jesus Christ, he defeated the devil. He defeated the, the serpent because sin and death could not defeat Jesus. So do you believe then that Jesus Christ rose from the dead for you 
that he died for you, that he, that he bore your sins on the cross, that he shed his blood to forgive you of your sins, but that he rose again from the dead. Do you believe it? I hope you do. But if you've never said that you believed it, today's the day to get right with God, and to believe in the truth that we have been speaking of all this time. Shall we pray?